the Subtle Forces Podcast. I am your host, Anja, not Anja. Do you ever feel rumpled? Or maybe not rumpled. Maybe the word that would be better would be frumpled. Do you ever feel frumpled, clobbered by the lack of basics in your life? Perhaps you're yearning for a reliable home that is just dry and safe and constant. Many wish we didn't have to flatten ourselves to receive such meager incomes. Have you ever skipped a doctor's opinion on your condition because this health system is impossible? Because this whole system is impossible? Have you ever shrieked while tweezing a hair out of your arm just because you are remembering yet again that this earth, our home, is in peril, that this earth is invaded by us. Do you ever find yourself binding yourself up tightly in blanket after blanket and just rolling yourself under the couch hoping to wake up all Rip Van Winkle in another time, in another world, in a better place. Do you give up? Do you take it? Are you defeated? Are you a coward? Are you needing to just surrender? Or are you willing to question our own planned obsolescence? If you are, please join me in the following prayer for existence. What if? What if? What if instead of bike lanes, we had elevated bike highways? What if higher education could be paid for in volunteer hours visiting the elderly? What if plastic was completely replaced with a biodegradable organism that can be grown in labs? What if dust magnetized to itself and we swept according to the poles? What if there was such a thing as a verbal eraser? What if ventriloquism was accessible through instinct? What if every bowling alley was open 24-7 and free to the public? What if picking up one piece of litter removed one equivalent-sized sin? What if every tire had a barcode and could be scanned by any road? What if 
bakeries sold the regret antidote? What if pumping iron led to enlightenment? What if we recognized the sentience of orchard trees and other sessile beings? What if every single but looking person had to have a mating dance or song? What if the freeway was converted into foot traffic only on Sundays? What if everyone was permitted one pony as that vermin supreme guy suggested? What about the two-day work week? What if it was easy to develop temperature-resistant footpads, eliminating the need for shoes? What if Amazon's winnings were distributed to all of the employees who earned them? What if there was a meter that could numerically detect how great a friendship you could have with any other person? What if they finally stopped including pockets in men's clothing? What if every person over 75 was assigned a pro bono riding coach? What if kindergartners were assigned college students? What if money trees weren't seasonal? What if tread and poses could be exchanged for bread and roses? What if all housing material had to be edible? What if landlords were rebranded as housing servants? What if every rental unit had to be demolished and rebuilt every 40 years? What about tree houses? What if the election commission and ice cream trucks finally joined forces? What if solar stoves were the norm? The city is coated with stickers. When you go for a walk and pass a pole or bike parking hoop, notice how these structures are festooned in stickers for bands, coffee shops, tattoo parlors. Often within that mix are stickers made by artists, the believers of creating stickers for stickers' sake. Artist stickers might just be a pretty scene, or they could be shipping labels with graffitied tags that essentially say, I was here, dog. Sniff me. And then there are the conceptual stickers. Stickers designed to pause the noise in your head and make you think a new thought. All over this city, I have seen a black and white sticker that says, Have Goals. Are you still feeling frumpled over there? This sticker suggests having some goals. Having goals must have changed this artist's life somehow, and now they want to shout their truth of salvation on street signs, stairwells, bus shelters, and any common space. Who is this person, and what have they seen? 
turns out, the artist behind Have Goals is a guy named Robert. My mom and my stepdad and I got lured into moving from Wisconsin to California. And the thing that we didn't know, because we didn't know, is how expensive it would be to live out there. Both my parents were alcoholics and drug users, so they were spending a lot of money and being personally impacted by those addictions. We lost our place to live pretty rapidly. And then my mom and stepdad separated. And so my mom and I lived at other people's houses. So a lot of experiences I had surrounded living in someone else's house and learning to try to work with the resources at hand, make those people happy and have a very low impact. So a lot of that was like sleeping in someone's living room, waiting for them to go to bed. So you could like go to sleep in their living room, get up early and like clean their house or just do whatever would ingratiate you to these people. So they would keep letting us live there because we really didn't have anywhere else to live. Being homeless in California is sort of, sort of less bad because the weather is pretty consistent. So if you do end up outside, you're not going like die. We had been living at these people's house for a couple of weeks. And it was sort of what I just described, where you're like living in their living room and just sort of like staying out of the way. They've got a shower, they eat meals and stuff. So that's cool. It was up in the mountains. And this is like a house where it's like up the mountain on one side and down the mountain on the other side. And the roads curve all over the place. And it just takes a long time to like get around a car and stuff. We didn't have a car. So we're living there big snowstorm comes in and it just, it buries the house. I mean, it snowed like 30 inches. It was just crazy. And we found out about it because in the middle of the night, we just hear this crash. And we find that one of the really tall pine trees in this area had like broken off and fallen like a javelin and stuck outside our window. So it didn't take us long to figure out that the only way we could get out of the house was through the windows. And not all of the windows worked because it got real humid and they wouldn't open. So we could only open the front door like a couple of inches. We were just pretty much stuck in the house for a few days. Couldn't get out. There were no plows coming, so there was really nowhere to go. So we ended up triaging all of our furniture because there was also no power and there's no water. It got cold really fast. So we ended up laying out like all the stuff we could burn in order of how well it would burn and how sentimental it was. 
one of the fun things that we learned is that you can take a bowling pin because we had a bunch of bowling pins for some reason and you can just like light the bottom with a match and the bowling pin will burn for like 30 minutes really enthusiastically down to a pile of ash and it's really hot so we burned all of those and then we just started breaking up furniture and burning that another big discovery in that journey was we didn't have any salt in the house for some reason, like table salt. And man, you would not believe how effective salt is at making food taste good. I mean, we all kind of know this, but man, if you don't have any salt at all, making stuff like oatmeal and stuff, it's terrible. You know, like that little bit of salt you put in oatmeal makes such a big difference. We ate through pretty much everything in the fridge and what we had. And then towards the end of that experience, I guess it was about two, three days later, truck pulls in the drive. This guy, Dan, and his family showed up in the driveway and their house had just burned down. And I mean, it burned to the ground because he had like tons of ammunition and flammable stuff in his house. So the fire department was not willing to go in there because all of these bullets were going off whenever they would get near the house, which really makes the fire department not want to get near your house. So they come in and I don't know if I had mentioned this, but the people that my mom and I were staying with were like genuine hippies and they were super cool people, really eager to like share their resources and be cool to each other. So it was, it was a pretty good situation, really, like one of the better ones we had been in because we'd been around some people who kind of like wanted stuff from us and demanded money and stuff. And these guys were just like, hey, man, if you're contributing, it's all good. So this family shows up from their burned down house. If you've ever been around someone whose house burned down, they smell like a house fire and all of their stuff smells like a house fire. So they brought in like their clothes and stuff and like now our house smelled like this fire, you know, and it takes weeks for that smell to like either you get used to it or it off gases or whatever. So they like added themselves to our household and all of us and it was like 11 ish people. We all lived there for a couple of months until they found another place. I guess that's when I started taking a lot more walks because the house was really full. But it was cool because like we're up in the mountains and, you know, no big deal. So you end up doing a lot of desperate things to get by. Like we were selling drugs. And at the time, we didn't really see that as a bad thing. Like it was the most lucrative thing that we could do. Like it would put food on the table and allow us to pay people to let us to stay with them. selling drugs. So we were selling like pot and crystal meth and LSD most of the time just to kind of get by. I was trying to get more legitimate work and experience because I'm like 16, I guess. So 
I'm working for this guy, Dan, and he had this business where he would pick up appliances from the side of the road. Like if you saw a broken appliance somebody was throwing out, he would go to them and say like, hey, for 10 bucks, I'll take that to the dump. And then they would be more than happy to pay that because most of the people who live up in the mountains of California are pretty rich. It's like an 80-20 thing. Like 20% of the people are super poor and we just like kind of get by on the people who are really rich. So someone would pay us to pick up like say a dryer and then we would take that dryer back to his house and fix it. And then he would have a network through people he knew and a church he went to to where people would pay him like 50 bucks for a working dryer. So he always kind of had this going, you know, he was looking for the appliances and you can fix appliances really for just a few bucks if you know what you're doing. So we did a lot of that. When the objective person, by which I just mean somebody with no experience with the situation, looks at someone's behavior, it's probably easy to wonder like, man, how did you get there? When you are in a desperate situation, you don't get out of bed and say like, I'm going to go kill a guy for 80 bucks or something. When we got into selling drugs, it wasn't like, gee whiz, that sounds like a great thing to do. It was just the most profitable thing that we could do to flip money into more money. And ultimately, for me, it led me down a number of steps towards like I used to break in people's houses. As a person, you don't start out like, you know what I should do is break into people's houses and steal the things. But you get there by like getting really hungry or like having no guidance or no resources and just getting like more and more desperate. And it also made me think of this one house that my mom and I were squatting at for like six months and the power finally went out. And so in the middle of the night, we dug a trench over to the neighbor's house and we put an extension cord in it because in California, they don't have basements. Your electrical panels on the outside of your house. So we just like cut the end off an electrical wire and like stuck it in the breaker and then covered everything back up. And we had power for like almost a month before they figured it out. But that's just the kind of desperate thing like you find yourself doing. I spend as much time as I can with people who are homeless and helping them because I can identify with it. And I guess I have like resources to offer. But a lot of it is because like I understand those situations. And the more you can like give someone some resources the more opportunity it makes for them to like improve their situation. And since I'm just up on my soapbox for a minute, I just want to take on the main thing that a lot of my conservative friends from my like time of being a conservative in the past, who I still know, like if they find out that like I'm helping a homeless person, the first thing I always get hit with is, well, what if they're going to go buy some drugs or whatever? And I've often replied to that by saying like, yep, yeah, okay, first of all, so what? Like, if you don't think this person knows that they have an addiction, you have no idea what that is like. Like, it isn't super great to be on drugs, you know? It's actually terrible. 
and desperate and it builds your desperation it gives you like a new mouth to feed which is like the thing you're carrying around and i am clearly ranting at this point but man it is such a passionate subject for me because people get like up on their high horse of judging other people when they have a lot of resources and so i guess in my life i've tried to make sure like taking care of myself and my family but i don't need to live nicer than this like it's not going to do anything for me like i'm inside and i have food and stuff so yay was there a time earlier in your childhood when things were more stable um yeah i mean when i was a kid my parents were divorced and so like they had two different houses and i just basically got shuttled between them like in the 70s and that time was a lot more stable and really everything changed for me when I moved out to California because that's when we realized how expensive it was out there. We got lured out by some relatives who were really well off and they took care of us for like two weeks and then they were like, well, you got a job now, good luck. And my mom and stepdad were only really able to get low-end jobs. My mom was the plant lady at a home center, which was like a minimum wage job. And my stepdad was the manager of the shoe department at the Kmart, which was also like a really low-end job. They started fighting more. All of a sudden we couldn't make the rent. And before long, we moved into a series of worse and worse places, probably A year and a half after moving out to California, it went from like, this is amazing. I live near Hollywood to my bedroom is in an unfinished crawl space under a house, you know, and it was just like such an incredible decline in my surroundings. Although I was like making the best out of it about six months after we moved out there. My mom just decided one day that my sister and I should be allowed to smoke pot with her. I think I was like 13 at that moment. My sister was 11. And it just kind of blew my mind. You know, like, this doesn't make any sense, like, why this is happening. But it was. And that just branched into a bunch of other weird behavior with my folks, like in terms of their drug use. Because I guess they wanted to be able to do it around us without having to hide it. I think that was probably the selfish reason. But then it turned into all of a sudden we're all dealing drugs. And then it kind of reached ahead two years later when we were living in this much worse place where my stepdad got really upset with me because he realized I was his competition. We were selling to the same people. And I would get there first for whatever reason and get them as a customer, which led to him moving out on us, which took away like a bunch of our resources and our household and the car. So then my mom ended up like starting to befriend all of these guys. I just started getting these speeches from these dudes who were like, hey, little dude, you know, your mom's a really special lady. And. I'm going to take care of her. And like, oh my God, I heard that one so many times from these dudes who were just jerks and they would end up hurting her or hurting me and then abandoning us again. Oh, that was, that was a bunch of good times. In fact, we were renting or squatting at the time 
my mom has this boyfriend, Gene, and everything was okay for a couple months. He's like sleeping at our house and stuff and like whatever. And he shows up at our front door and he looks really weird. And he's like holding his neck. I open the door. Oh, hey, Gene, come on in. And then I realized he has an injury. He had gone to his ex-wife's house and she was like, oh, come in. And then slashed his throat with a razor. And so like he jumps in his car and drives to our house. And my mom starts trying to fix this as you do, I guess. And she just throws me his keys and she says, get rid of that car. And like, I don't have a license, you know, whatever. And I don't want to be around what's happening here. So I'm like, yeah, okay. I take his keys and I go to the car and I get in the car and it's night and I turn the car on. And then like, I realize the steering wheel is sticky and everything is sticky. There is blood everywhere in this car. So I end up driving this thing for like a couple of miles somewhere, just like behind a McDonald's or whatever, and just like getting out of it and throwing the keys in the ditch and walking. So I get back home. She has like bandaged this situation up because we cannot go to the hospital on multiple levels. No, that is not a thing. And that was the same house we were stealing the electricity. (laughs) And it's also the same house where we ended up getting hired by the neighbors because we needed money to help watch their pot growing operation in their backyard, which led to like numerous, very frightening nights spent outside fending off weird people who'd figured out this was here. Ugh. And then the punchline of that whole experience is that just before the plants were about to bud and become valuable and good i'm over at school because i was still going to school this was like the last month i ever went to school in like the 10th grade And me and a buddy are selling joints to kids on the corner. And some dude just comes by and makes a comment about my buddy's hair because like punk rock was a thing and he had spiky hair and I was like real edgy or whatever. This dude jumps off his bike and he comes over and this guy was huge. He just starts beating the shit out of my friend Chris to the point of like, whoa. You know, they're just on the ground and he is like pounding this. And so my friend Chris pulls out a knife in another story. We had gone to this like science fiction convention and stole a bunch of knives. So he had this knife and he just stabs this guy a bunch of times. And this guy gets up and he is bleeding from numerous wounds, gets on his bike, rides down the street. We watch him ride two blocks and then fall over. And we turn back towards the school and there are all kinds of people looking at us now. And I am freaked out. This all just happened. Like, And Chris is full of this dude's blood and he's holding a knife and it just doesn't look good. So I pull out all the money that I have in my pocket and I give it to him. And I said, like, get on a bus. You got to get out of here. And he just takes off. So I gather myself and go back to class. So I'm sitting there in class and like 10 minutes later, 
Uh, this kid comes in with a note and gives it to the teacher. Like, oh, Robert, you gotta go to the principal's office. Oh, okay. No problem. Go to the principal's office. Cops are there. I get arrested, taken downtown, and they put me in a room. They question me about all this. I'm like, can't you know, tell them the whole thing. And then they take me in the next room and they're like, you know, there were some witnesses. <laughs> and there are like 10 girls in there. And they bring me in and they're like, yeah, that's him. He's the guy who paid him to do it. Oh, I'm like, oh, oh, okay. <laughs> so that goes poorly. And I was later released a couple hours later. I go home and it turns out that helicopters were looking for Chris at my house where the pot growing operation was next door. So the neighbors ripped out everything and they put it in my bedroom in the crawl space under the house. So I go in my room and there is like this giant mountain of pot plants down there. And those pot plants had not come to fruition. So they were like valueless, right? But it's giant stinky pile, you know? I can't overestimate how big this was. Chris got seven months for stabbing the guy. I had to testify in court about it. I didn't get charged, so that was cool. And then we sold all of that terrible pot for like pennies on the dollar to people for like a year. Oh, it was horrible. Like give you a headache every time. Well, not good. Oh yeah. I guess that all happened at this one house we were renting where eventually we ended up squatting because they weren't successful at evicting us. And then I think we kind of hid from the landlord. Like basically if they would come over, we would just shoot out the back door because we didn't really have a lot of connection to the things that we owned. So it was like easy to like get on out of there quick. The people who grew all the pot, who they let us live in their living room for a while. And then they moved up to the mountains. There was an actually an extra room there that they let us be in. And then the hippie people live next door. And we just kind of transferred over to their house because we had pretty much worn out our welcome. It is so hard to live at someone else's house without annoying them because it's like their house. And I get it. I've let people stay with us in the past and it's fine, you know, but like a couple months later, you're just tired of that happening all the time and you just wish it would stop. So there kind of ends up being like a lot of social pressure. And and I actually remember sometimes my mom and I would talk about like, hey, maybe if we go camp out in the woods for a couple days, that'll like extend their tolerance for us, you know, just to try to like make the most of the situation. And you'd tell people like, oh, we're going to go visit family or something, but you'd be like over there just like staying out of sight you're really just trying to like get by with nothing which is a lot more difficult than you'd think and I guess as an adult now later you know it's like 30 years later I still have a to-go bag all of the time and I don't need one at all (laughs) and still like keep a bunch of 
extra non-perishable food and stuff. I'm like, I don't know. Do I need this? You know, we rotate it out and like take it to a homeless shelter or whatever. Just is it here for a reason? I guess. You know, it's just like the thing that sticks with you from having these experiences of being in a desperate situation. When I was a kid and my folks got divorced, there was actually a period of time when they had my sister and I just go live with relatives. And I didn't really understand it at first. It like, took me a long time to figure out what was going on. It was like, we're going to our aunt's house for a couple of months. And now we live at our grandma's for six months and have Christmas there. But like really on the look back and from talking to my folks, they had gotten divorced. Neither of them wanted to take care of us. And so they were just doing their own thing and getting high and listening to records and doing whatever. My mom went on some trip out east for like six months. And it, I guess I was okay with it because I was totally distracted. But once I realized, like, she called me on the phone one day and then like, I, all of a sudden I like burst into tears. Like, I forgot you existed. Oh no, help, cry in my ear. You know, the seventies were just like a totally different, there's like a lot less accountability that people put over each other for these kind of family situations. So there were a lot of confusing experiences like that, where like it's sold to the kid as like, oh, here's a fun trip for you. When in actuality, everyone's just kind of washing their hands of you for a while. Thinking about this, I've really been like homeless in a way that I would classify as homeless, like probably four different times, significantly homeless. To me, like being homeless bumps right up against the, the challenges of renting, trying to make it every time. A lot of people who are in that situation, and I don't mean to generalize, but a lot of people in those situations have alcohol or drug or other addiction problems that really sap your resources, you know, and make it hard to make the rent and stuff. Because ultimately, that's what it comes down to. Some dude just comes around one day, is like banging on the door, like, hey, you know, you're not paying me to live here. Come on. That is like the worst part of being poor. It's just like hiding from those people. And then a lot of the stigmas that surround it, too. In the 80s, I was on welfare for a long time. And at that time, they would give you a lot of food stamps in Wisconsin, a lot of food stamps. Plus you could be on WIC at that time. WIC, they would give you like milk and cereal, and baby formula, and diapers and stuff. So you wouldn't have to spend food stamps on those. So you'd have like all these food stamps. And I worked at a restaurant, so I knew how to cook pretty good. But I found out on my first couple trips to the store, that you had to kind of act cool and stuff when you were buying at the store. Like, don't buy anything good. Someone will see you buy it and pay with food stamps. There's like a massive stigma around using food stamps, even still. You know, I've seen it happen even recently. You see someone use their EBT card. Somebody's over there just looking at them, wagging their finger. 
you know, hope your situation stays good forever. Hope, hope you don't get old and that person takes care of you. You know, like there's so many endpoints that people don't think through when they are looking down on other people. I guess that's just the nature of our world, right? You obviously have been in a place where you had nothing more you could lose. I'm curious as to what your ideal living situation uh, consists of. It's my current situation. <laughs> There's just the basic resources that you need being dry and warm and fed. I'm arguably pretty well off. I live in a nice house. I have a dog and plenty of food and married and no complaints. My kids are all grown up now and moved out. Healthcare. If we had like healthcare in our country, that would be great. My wife and I own a business and we have a number of employees and we provide healthcare for them. And every year we have to make a decision. She and I have to sit down at the kitchen table and choose everybody's health plan for the year. Uh, I'm not qualified to do this. We look at each other like, well, should it be this one with this deductible that covers these things and also your teeth? Or should it be this one that has glasses and this deductible? Like, why is this my job? This shouldn't be a decision we're all making. This should just be part of America. I have a lot of health problems personally that require a bunch of care. And if I did not have insurance, we would not be able to live in our house. This would not be an affordable situation. And I have a bunch of friends who are in Canada and the UK and other places in the world where their healthcare situation is so different and it's funded. And it just kind of blows my mind that we don't have that here. You know, that would make a big difference because ultimately it, it ties you to have to have a particular job so that you can stay locked into the capitalism model as a worker. I guess that's my new answer to that question. Like it is great to be warm, dry and fed, but God, if I could like go to the doctor without it being like a deal breaker, because I have four friends who can't go to the doctor at all, you know, <laughs> like, oh no. If the government allowed every family to own their own pony, would you accept it given, and, and the government would like provide like the place for the pony to live and stuff if necessary? Good question, because I don't really like have an immediate pony application, but I bet I could figure out like some reason for the pony to be here. I'm going to give you the pitch for the new thing that we're doing and have goals. We converted part of our little free library into an art zone. So it's going to have like free art for people, which could be whatever. And then also free art supplies because our, our library has been going pretty good and we're just trying to make it like more interesting. Yeah. Where is it? It's uh, 94th and Blue Mound. Come by the zoo. Right on. What a t
tough childhood, huh? Robert is a humble, helpful guy. He's been homeless, desperate, but somehow he has become a person in a house. He's become a dad, an architect, and a street artist. He has made a few goals in his life and saw them through. What else is possible? I decided to ask my friend Chris. What if we all lived in these neighborhoods that were so close-knit that instead of sending somebody a text, it was just quicker and more efficient to put on your shoes and, and go and knock on their door? Chris Kirko is the co-host of Housing for All, a four-episode podcast with everything you need to know about reforming the American housing system. He also co-hosts Housing for Us, interviewing ordinary people who have struggled with the American housing system, as well as ordinary people living in extraordinary housing systems. So, Anja, so you say you want to build a utopia. And in a utopia, there won't be any homelessness. Um, so everyone's going to need a place to live. But I've got really good news. That's going to be the easy part of building your utopia. There's no need to reinvent the wheel. Several countries have gotten really close to housing everyone. And so we can make a, a utopian housing system based on these ideas because they've gotten so close. One of my favorite housing systems is in Singapore, where nearly everyone lives in public housing. And it's not public housing like we think of public housing. Um, this is really nice, luxurious public housing. Um, there's a public housing complex called the Pinnacle at Duxton. And it was so luxurious that private developers complained that it was setting a standard of luxury that they couldn't meet. It's a complex with seven towers and there are large walkways connecting the 26th and 50th floors. Um, and these walkways are actually public parks. They're um, these lush tropical public parks. It's not public housing like we would think of public housing. Like it's, it's, as, you know, it's as nice of housing as you could possibly want. Like it's won like multiple architecture awards and like the parks on the walkways are, I mean, I mean, you can see pictures like it's, it's like, it's hard to describe, like it's just, like, I don't, I, don't, I don't really know what to say. The other thing that's really special about this housing system is that nearly everyone is a homeowner. And so in this country, we don't think of public housing as being home ownership. But in Singapore, most people own their unit of public housing. And so it's kind of like a government-owned condominium. And it works really, really well. There are pictures of the interior. And like, I'm not sure... Like, I'm not sure what to say. I mean, it's just really nice. Like, it's just someplace anybody would want to live. And it's really important to point out that nothing makes Singapore special. We can do what they did. We can have, you know, we can have this great public housing that's available to everyone. Um, and, and, you know, for everyone to be able to afford a place to live. Um, we, we can do this. Nothing makes Singapore special. In fact, when they started building public housing in the 60s, a quarter of the country was homeless. Try to think about that. A quarter of everyone was homeless. And yet they, they went from that to having one of the best housing systems in the entire world. 
On the other hand, Singapore is a really dense city. And, you know, maybe, you know, these, this idea of government owned condominiums isn't the most effective way to run a housing system everywhere. Um, and so for a similar system, we could look to Norway. Um, they also tried to make everyone a homeowner um, and they, they largely succeeded, um, but they didn't do so with government owned buildings. They did so with government loans. And so basically the, the government tried to issue loans for everyone to become a homeowner. And so since these were public loans, your monthly payment was much lower than it would have been if you had a private loan um, because the government was subsidizing in the home loans. Uh, and so if you were living in a single family home, um, it would be just like in the United States, uh, except that your loan would be from the government. Uh, and then if you were living in a large apartment building, um, it would be set up as a cooperative. Some people like myself, as soon as they hear cooperative housing, I just imagine a bunch of people all living together, there being a chore wheel, <laughs> there being like inter-housing conflicts. But this is different. This is like maybe you have like a duplex and whoever lives upstairs and whoever lives downstairs is part of the cooperative. And it's not like you have to share your rooms in the same apartment or something, right? Right. Yeah. So it could be a really large building. Like it could be like thousands of units. It's just like a condominium where you own your unit. But instead of having like a for-profit company owning the building, it's the people in the building own it. But there is no for-profit company that owns the building. It's the people in the building that own the building itself. And so you own your own unit and then together with everyone, you own the building. So it's kind of like living in a, an apartment building, but there's no landlord. And then a really cool thing about the system is that you're expected to pay it forward. So if you ever had to move, you could only sell your home for an affordable price. And so the idea is that you're getting help with a public loan and you're paying less than you would if you tried to become a homeowner any other way. And so since you're getting public support today, you should pay it forward and support the next generation. And you do that by agreeing that you will only sell your home at an affordable price. So then it'll be affordable to the next generation and they'll make it affordable to the generation after that. And you know, these are all really straightforward ideas. This is something we could do. Um, this is pretty close to a utopian housing system and we could do all of this. On the other hand, maybe we don't want everyone to be a homeowner. Maybe in our utopia, we want people to be renters so that if they wanted to move and try out someplace new, they could. Here, there's a lot fewer choices because there's only a few countries that are majority renter. But probably the best one is in Austria um, because Austria has extremely high quality public housing, just like Singapore. And in Vienna, nearly two thirds of everyone lives in public housing. In Vienna, they once had the most vicious landlords in the entire world. And yet today, renting from for-profit landlords is so advantageous that many people choose renting over home ownership. Try to, try to wrap your head around that. Can you describe the vicious landlords of Vienna? Yes. So looking back in the records of the homeless shelters um, in the early 1900s, a quarter of the entire city of Vienna would spend some time in a homeless shelter every single year. People wow. would rent a bed for six hours to sleep, and then they would go back to being homeless. 
we are you, we kind of expect that after a year your landlord is going to jack up the rent and you're going to have to move like we kind of expect that but at that time in vienna landlords would jack up the rent every month and there was a significant portion of the population of vienna that had to move every single month and they were constantly looking for a new apartment because the landlords were they, they were so vicious you know like 10 people crammed into a studio apartment there was a, a single homeless encampment of over 100,000 people. Um, I think Singapore had a much worse homelessness problem, but Vienna was really, really bad. And the landlords were, they, they, they were pretty outrageous. So what year did they turn this uh, around in? Well, so the first reforms to the housing system in Austria occurred in 1917. So that was when they started having rent controls. And when they also change the, the way that leases work. And so the, the way that leases work is that they last forever until the tenant wants to move out. Um, so the landlord can only force you to move out if she like she herself has no place to live and needs, needs a place to stay. That's the only time a landlord can end a lease um, if the tenant doesn't want to move out. And so it's rent controlled and these leases, they don't allow for uh, increases in rent. You can also inherit a lease from your parents. And so it's kind of like inheriting a home that's owned. It's like inheriting a home from your parents in this country, but it's a, a, an apartment, it's a rental. Um, you're also allowed to renovate your apartment over your landlord's objections. So it kind of has all these benefits that we associate with home ownership. You can pass it on to the next generation. You can live there forever and your landlord can't force you to move. Um, but the landlord is still responsible for all of the maintenance. So all the annoying stuff you have to fix, that's the landlord's problem. All the expensive stuff like water heaters or furnaces or roofs, that's the landlord's problem. The landlord has to deal with that. Yeah, yeah. So to go from having, I mean, really the worst landlords in the world to a place where people choose to rent over home ownership because it's so advantageous. Um, I think that's a really important lesson for your utopia. Nothing makes any of these countries special. We could easily do what they do and get really close to a utopian housing system. We have blueprints that we can follow to make a, a utopian housing system. All right, now, as you know, in a utopia, everyone should have a pony. So the real question here is cost. How much is housing everybody going to cost and how much money is going to be left over for ponies? And so I've got more good news. Housing everyone isn't going to cost any more money than we already spend. The federal government already devotes so many resources to housing. And so it wouldn't actually cost any more money to house everyone. Um, we simply have to change how we use those resources, but we don't actually need any more resources. So to see what I mean, the biggest government program that supports housing is called Fannie Mae. Uh, you may have heard of it. Um, Fannie Mae actually has $3.5 trillion of assets. Um, that is trillion with a T. Fannie Mae is so big that it is larger than all of the too big to fail Wall Street banks. Fannie Mae has a brother and his name is Freddie Mac. And Freddie Mac does a lot of the same things that Fannie does to support housing. Freddie Mac has $2 trillion worth of assets. Again, that's trillion with a T. And Freddie Mac is larger than all but two of the too big to fail Wall Street banks. And then the government also has the federal home loan bank system. 
that system has $1 trillion in assets. And that makes it larger than all but four of the too big to fail Wall Street banks. But honestly, there's been so much consolidation among banks that a decade ago, Freddie would have been larger than all of the too big to fail banks. And the Federal Home Loan Bank would have been bigger than all but two. And we still haven't talked about the Federal Housing Administration or the VA or Ginny May or all these other different ways that the government supports housing. So basically, the government has trillions of dollars devoted to supporting housing. And that's way more than enough to ensure a utopian housing system. So it's just a matter of changing how we support housing. Because a lot of the assistance that Fannie and Freddie and the Federal Home Loan Bank and other government programs, a lot of the the assistance goes to for-profit interests, but there are no strings attached. And so if we simply changed a few rules about um, what you had to do in order to get help from Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac, we could easily have a utopian housing system just with the resources that we already have devoted to housing. So Chris, what are some of the rules that have to get changed in order for everyone to benefit from this money? Well, that's a really big question you're asking. I'm going to have to recommend you listen to our mini-series called Housing for All. All the work of his organization, Housing for All, is on the web at housing, the number four, dot U.S. Would you accept a pony from the government if they were giving them away? I mean, in a utopia, I would. (laughs) My Uh backyard's not very big, I don't think, right now. Well, I assume with all that funding, there would be enough money for everyone to have a pony plot in addition to a pony, right? (laughs) Okay, yes. I mean, we're talking trillions. Right, right. What would your family name your pony? Buttercup. Great. Didn't have to think about that one at all. I knew right away it would have to be Buttercup. Thank you, Robert and Chris, who were my guests today. Thank you to Frisia McKee for co-dreaming that list of what-ifs. Thank you to Anton Seeger for the music. Thank you, Anna, Shane, and Natalie for taking the time to talk with me, though I didn't use your interviews. They do sit in the potential of my future show vault. Thank you, listeners. I have no idea who you all are, but I like imagining you. If you enjoyed this show, maybe share it with someone. Maybe write a review if you feel inclined, or subscribe. All of that business helps the subtle forces to reach more ears.